Welcome back to More Capable, a robotics podcast. I'm Shaw Flick. And I'm Beth York. This is episode three of our series where we looked at the future of robotics and healthcare. Surgery specifically. Right, because we've explored robotics and its impact on our lives, the state of healthcare. Well, and let's not forget about the murderous, job stealing humanoid robots of our popular <laughs> imagination. Right, but we did clear that up in episode one. And though I really do want a robot that turns into an EV ala transformer from the 80s, this episode focuses on what it takes to bring a robotic innovation to market. You know, the stuff that really makes us more capable. It's the work we're doing now that enables the future of robotics and its impact on humanity. If you've been following along in our journey, then you know we've brought in the voices and perspectives of a dozen or so roboticists, innovators, media members, investors, doctors, and more. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. But also check out episodes one and two for a little bit more context. For this episode, we've assembled guests to continue the journey from what's happening today into what's happening, wait for it, tomorrow, tomorrow and beyond. Tomorrow, tomorrow. Sorry. <laughs> As we worked on this Future of Healthcare final episode of our robotics miniseries, something Fadi Saad, VP of Strategic Partnerships at Mass Robotics, said stood out to us. Intelligence is everywhere. There are lots of intelligent people out there that invent things. And the question is how we can help those intelligent people come up with really successful companies and, and give them the opportunities to grow and scale. Right? It's an age-old question. What's the value of innovation without execution? Right, and when it comes to executing on robotics of any kind, but especially applications that overlap with human health and wellness, what are the mechanics? What's that pathway of that execution? Well, it's not surprising that money is a major driver here. Right. <laughs> it does come down to money. And just thinking about how to get a concept to market, considering the time it takes for research, prototyping, testing, validating, pivoting, you know, multiple rounds of iteration, then having it embraced by your target market. And of course, investors factoring in the ROI. Aye, 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 aye. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Fadi actually had a few things to say about that, too. Their challenge is not really the uh, kind of the conception, but rather the commercialization of the technology. The, most of them are brilliant engineers and roboticists and technologists. The key struggle in this particular space is how do you really take a technology or a working prototype and really mature it to a product that uh, has a, a particular application for a particular customer? This is what most companies struggle with. So that's the view from the nonprofit Mass Robotics, which is an innovation hub and startup cluster focused on the needs of the robotics and AI community here in Massachusetts. And it's important to keep an open mind about robotic surgery. What does it really mean? And how are robotics used in operating rooms today? Yeah, and what can we expect in the future? <laughs> right, because healthcare is super neat and tidy, and it's super easy to get these tools into the hands of surgeons, right? <laughs> no, we know that's not true. No, I, with all the hospitals, patients, funders, I'm not going to sit around and pretend that I understand how it all works or how a robotics company even gets itself placed in a hospital. Yeah, me either. But Tom Salemi, editorial director of the podcast Device Talks, had this to say. So robotics really has, has grown over the years. I mean, there have been a few companies that have been successful, but it still remains uh, robotic performed surgeries really are still a minority, a very small fraction actually of the surgeries that are done. But what I, what I find exciting now is that I think that there's enough critical mass that 
folks who would be working in robotics companies and creating robots that move boxes or drive cars. They're seeing an opportunity in medtech to use their robotic expertise and know-how to create surgical tools that can either perform a surgery better or can help a surgeon in Boston perform a surgery in Africa. And I think that sort of purpose for those who want to work in robots, but again, who want to have uh, a real impact on the world, I think that's drawing more and more people to it. So I'm excited about the fact that the goodwill or the intentions of the medtech industry is really starting to catch fire and to reach other industries, including robotics. But what does the future look like and what's the time frame? What the future of robotics looks like, at least what the time frame is. It's certainly robots are going to find their way into the OR. They're going to be an integral part of providing healthcare, both locally and remotely, both in the developed world and parts of the world that need better healthcare. So it's just a matter of time. But the question is how long that time will take. I'm convinced, though, that we're at a point where we're seeing really three key things going to drive the adoption of surgical robotics. Number one, we're seeing a lot of money flow into the space. We're seeing surgical companies raise hundreds of millions of dollars to advance their surgical systems and to really begin manufacturing. We're seeing new experts come into the space, new executives who have experience with building robots and leading robotic companies. They're not just people in medtech who have moved into a surgical robot space. They're people, again, who know how to make robots a business. And third, and I think most important, is we have surgeons now who were raised as gamers. We have the, the CEO of Proxmi says she came up with this telepresence concept because she was a gamer as a kid and she knew how to use technology. People like her trust technology more than perhaps an older generation of surgeons might. Tom makes some really great points, and you can see how this plays out with Vicarious Surgical, founded by engineers Adam Sachs and Sammy Khalifa while they were undergraduates at MIT, along with surgeon Dr. Barry Green. The purpose? Develop a surgical robot that will help democratize robot-assisted surgery. Thinking about what actually powers innovation for surgical robotics, well, like we said, it's money. And then there's thoughtful robotics executives and digital native surgeons. These are three really important elements, but still they're functioning at a really high level. Yeah, and digging in deeper, adoption of tech or just change in general, right? It has to come from better outcomes or more efficiency or some benefit just beyond, oh, gee whiz, isn't this neat or new or novel? Yeah, totally. And the goal is to get back to what robotic-assisted surgeries are good at. That's being less invasive while maximizing capabilities. So better for surgeons, better for patients, but how does that like actually play out? Right. I think we have to think about it more from end to end. You know, everyone wants better surgical outcomes, right? And that's why surgeons are so well-trained. But by adding a layer of technology into the mix means surgeons have to learn to use yet another tool on top of their already precise skills and knowledge. That makes sense. And getting proficient with that new tool, if the tool's hard to use, that makes adoption less likely. And if results are only marginally better, I mean, why even change? Yeah, no, it's a good question. But on the flip side, if there's a tool that is easier to be proficient at, then the surgeon doesn't have that same obstacle follow me here, right? More proficiency, better surgeries, shorter surgical times, fewer complications, faster recovery times. These are all better outcomes for us, the consumers, patients. For sure. I mean, it's just a better 
overall patient experience. It's also really important to look at the surgeon, making their job easier. So yeah, that's Adam Sachs, roboticist and CEO, co-founder of Vicarious Surgical. And he's sharing his vision and take on all this. And cutting procedural time, which is a benefit to the surgeon allows them to fit in more procedures per day. Many surgeons are actually paid per case, so that makes a big difference. And fitting in more procedures per day benefits the hospital because hospitals in the United States are almost exclusively paid per case that they perform by the payers. So that provides huge economic incentive and benefit to the hospitals. And then finally to the payers, payers are heavily incentivized to focus on procedures that provide better outcomes for the patients because it requires less recurrence and fewer complications mean fewer surgeries, which means more economic benefit to the payer. The real benefit of surgical robotics uh, originally was this idea that we can simplify the surgical procedures for the surgeons and simplify the training around the tools and allow surgeons more versatility and to do better quality procedures. But unfortunately, with the cost basis, the physical size, the level of infrastructure required, most surgical robots have been placed in major hospital systems in major cities where there are actually very specialized surgeons already, where we don't need that level of versatility. I really do believe in that original mission of surgical robotics, the idea that by providing a more intelligent, more capable tool, we can allow the surgeon to broaden their capability and provide better quality care to, to more of their patients. And in this way, the robotics from Vicarious Surgical will enable doctors to be more capable. What we're working on is much more about creating safer and more effective procedures and then allowing the surgeon to step aside and to do some other things, to focus on using their intelligence and their training to plan the procedures, to meet with patients, to decide what procedures they really need, and to allow some of that execution to actually fall on some of the other operating room staff. Because you do have you know, a number of highly skilled, highly trained humans in the operating room. And if we can start to go to a model that allows a surgeon to further expand the number of procedures they're able to do by doing perhaps even someday simultaneous procedures, we'll be able to hugely expand the capability of surgeons to be able to offer more surgery to, to patients that need it uh, across the, the US and across the world. I, I really believe that, that that's the mission and that's the long-term vision that we're aiming for. So that's probably the goal of any surgical tech, better outcomes, more often. Yeah, and continuing that idea of better, the vicarious surgical robot aims to be more of the good stuff and less of the invasive, counterintuitive, complicated stuff by using immersive technology and a robot that operates through a single tiny entry point. Ah, that makes sense. But that's just the hardware. We talked to Sammy Khalifa, co-founder and chief technology officer of Vicarious Surgical about it. And he got pretty excited about how the hardware and software work together to drive more of those better outcomes. You know, I'm talking artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of the buzzwords that everybody's talking about, but they are very real, especially in healthcare. You know, things like automating procedures. If you can automate repetitive tasks for surgeons, instead of, you know, having to, to close a, a wound and suture, you know, throw every one of those dozens of sutures by hand, if you can have a program do that for you and make it perfect every single time, that's obviously gonna improve patient outcomes. 
the way we, uh, our camera is designed, it actually has a larger area. And that larger area means we can have more sensors. More sensors means more data. If you have more data, you can actually perform better from an artificial intelligence perspective. And so artificial intelligence and machine learning is the future. To me, like the biggest challenge that I've experienced through my career is just defining when is good enough, right? You know, when is good enough to go to the market? When is good enough for the patient? When is good enough for the surgeon, right? It's, these, are, these are the questions that we ask ourselves every single day. When is good enough? Like, when do you stop innovating and start putting the technology out there in the world? Yeah, and before that happens, it needs to be tested, regulated, and all that. So if the goal is to help patients, then adding too many extra features, you know, that may make it too expensive for hospitals to actually buy. And if hospitals can't afford it, well, then it'll never help any patients. Well, that certainly sounds better than me as a potential patient believing my care is good enough, right? Because I want and expect it to be, you know, the best option, right? Especially when it comes to surgery. I want the best quality and all of that is wrapped up in the outcome and the experience, including the recovery. Exactly. So it's striking a balance on innovation, cost, and then the patient. There's a lot of key pieces of the patient experience. Again, Vicarious Surgical's Adam Sachs. The, the first that I think is actually worth touching on is accessibility of the surgery, accessibility of high-quality surgical care. Because even in the United States, there's a lot of patients that just don't have the access to the you know, the incredible surgeons that we work with and that we're looking forward to working with on a regular basis, they, they can only do so many procedures. And the ability to, to elevate surgical care overall is the, the first piece of that patient experience. You know, one thing on the patient experience is, you know, just think about the last year and how telepresence has transformed the way routine care is delivered. Doctor visits on Zoom and, you know, just embracing that tech by sheer necessity. For sure. The pandemic shined a light on a lot of those gaps in a lot of areas. But it served to accelerate some tech to make care more accessible. Of course, it doesn't solve all the complicated issues around access to care or how to pay for it, but it does expand services to where they were once out of reach due to geography. And you know, Tom shares some of the hard truths around access and thoughts around how it will improve with more mature telepresence options. There are about 5 billion people in the world that lack access to safe surgery. I mean, that's most of the people in the world. And 140 million people need life-saving surgical procedures. And there are 80 million more who receive poor quality surgery as a result of just where they live and where they are. So telepresence systems, as they mature, they're really going to be able to, to level that playing field. And I, and I think all of that data actually came from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. This is another one of those instances where I think the pandemic has really accelerated the development of an industry. And what these technologies really allow is for a surgeon in a hospital in Boston to assist a surgeon, say, somewhere in rural northern New Hampshire, where the, the surgeon there may have a case that's very challenging. There may not be the time to get that patient to an operating room at one of the major hospitals. So there increasingly is going to be an opportunity for these surgeons to collaborate and for the surgeon at a major medical institute to impart their their experience and their wisdom to a surgeon farther away who may not have that same experience with those procedures. So it's first of all devastating to know that there's that shortage of access to good healthcare in the world. We tend to think that if people need the care they'll get the care. That's absolutely not the truth. 
And I think what telepresence companies can do, like Proxime, like others, is they can really, again, level those playing fields and bring the knowledge of, of surgeons in one of those areas where we're fortunate to have those skill sets to those parts of the world where we don't. Yeah, and I think that collaboration piece is really important. You know, I want to imagine a world where a surgeon can operate remotely on a patient with safety and with ease. But first, really, it's about that knowledge transfer and experience sharing. Right. So a doctor in a major metro area may see dozens of patients with a particular ailment or illness or perform lots of procedures that a doctor in a more remote, less populous area may have less exposure to. So from the consultation end alone, this is going to elevate the level of care vicariously in a sense. Yeah. And of course, the goal is to always have a better outcome, right? But demonstrating that with more than anecdotal evidence, the kind of info that speaks to all the stakeholders, you know, the show us prove it. New technologies, old technologies, the things that medical device companies need to do to win patients over, to win surgeons over, to win hospitals over, to win payers over. The insurers were going to pay for all this. The way to convince them all is data. Data, 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 data. Clinical trials demonstrate why this helps, why this shortens a hospital stay. Demonstrate why this allows us to do eight surgeries in an OR in one day instead of six. You know, demonstrate over time through testing that this technology that we have really does make people's lives better and really makes the surgeon's job easier. So it's all going to come back to, to data. And that's the way that these companies are going to have to move forward if they really want to make an impact in this industry. And I think more surgeons who have the technology that provides them data will be able to do a better job, a faster job, a cleaner job, and hopefully will allow patients to heal faster, to stay out of the hospital for longer periods of time. And I think that's ultimately where we want to go. That's how we improve people's lives. And incidentally, that's also how we save the healthcare system money by keeping people healthy. You know, and that's just it. If people are avoiding surgery because the perceived risks outweigh the benefits, like we learned earlier about hernia surgery, then they're not taking care of their health as well as they could be. Right. And if I'm the patient and need surgery, I'm thinking about how much time I can be away from my life. What's my recovery time? Even if the outcome is great, the time it takes to recover is a huge factor on whether I go through the surgery at all. Right. So there are a number of forces driving to get a product from concept to market that make a good case for miniature robotic surgery for us, the patient outcomes and recovery time. But to get there, these products need to be developed. Surgeons need to be trained. So a hugely practical element is money. Money. <laughs> right. And who the heck is going <laughs> to pay for it? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Beth, just to be clear, I can say, ooh, money, like it's super obvious. But, you know, like most things... I'm not an expert on market dynamics or venture capital funding or how these decisions involving massive sums of money are made. But we talked to Jody Holtzman, senior managing partner at Longevity Venture Advisors, because you know what? He actually knows what he's talking about when it comes to the financial side of robotics. Robotics is a capital intensive business. And so right there within the VC world, not everybody wants to be in hardware, right? And particularly over the last 20 years, the excitement has been around software and SaaS. And, you know, it's like once that initial investment happens, it's just ka-ching, 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 repetition, no additional investment except for the occasional update, which is all done ambiently in the background. But you do have, you know, investors that are comfortable with, have experience with devices in general, 
And then there's a subsegment of them that are willing to make huge bets in robots and these big machines. So right there, you're speaking about a subset of, uh, and which is true for, for every part of the VC community, but it's this particular group. Then you have that group that's also in healthcare and robotics, which is a further subset. These are, you know, investors who are making, you know, really, you know, big bets. Even an A round for a uh, robotics company is very different than an A round for a uh, software driven services company. It, it just requires more money to build and develop these things. So that's going to continue, but you have to demonstrate success. And as Jody shared, this is true of any investment. Why this company and not the other one? And that's one of the key questions for investment strategy. The first being, what are you going to sell? Second question, who are you going to sell it to? And then third, again, why should anyone buy from you and not the other guy? Exactly. How do you differentiate from the competition? And one of the ways you have to demonstrate is that scalpel or needle in the hands of a robot is going to have better outcomes. And it has to be better outcomes, in my view. It can't be equal outcomes. Why pay the extra money for the same? Right. Why pay more money for the same? So it has to be some magnitude of better by some metric to justify why the surgeon or the hospital or the surgical center or whatever it is should even buy the thing, let alone the additional maintenance, training costs, support staff, you know, et cetera. So you have those dynamics happening as context at the same time as you have this innovative company finding a solution. And so those two things come together and I'll just say this, you know, robots are everywhere. AI is everywhere. It's in our cars. It, you know, it's in our homes. It's not humanoid most of the time. This is all happening now. And investors are looking at the multiplicity of possible applications. So, Beth, you remember on the first episode when we talked to one of the most successful roboticists of all time, right? I sure do. You mean Colin Engel from iRobot. Well, if my memory serves me right, which it sometimes does. He also weighed in on this, right? Oh, yes, he did. Colin, how do you manage investor expectations and in innovations in the robotic space? I like to say that we should make sure that we're always taking on projects where if we win, we win. I don't care if they're hard, but if we actually do it, there should be a huge positive impact, impact on the world, but also financial impact. That's a story that a venture investor would actually like to hear. You know, one in 20 of venture investors' investments pays for the rest. They want to hear big ideas that can change the world that are plausible, not necessarily easy, but are plausible and could return 100x. Why can't we build a better future? You know, I think that optimists have a bad rap because people tend to think that they're unrealistic. I think it takes great courage to be an optimist and be convinced that you can actually build that better world. The future is not a land of bunnies and unicorns, but there's no reason why we can't make it better. But this is gonna be a 
a very real journey. I, I like to say that, okay, I've been at this 31 years and we're just about none of the way to building the robots that we were promised watching the Jetsons back in 1962. So I counsel patients, but it's it's also exciting because it's 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 actually happening. And we are every year improving the richness of the partnership that we can have with our machines. So if I was going to paraphrase Jody and Colin, I'd say robotics has a bright future. Yes, it's capital intensive, but people are excited to support the industry because it improves the quality of our lives while running in tandem with other innovations, making the technology cheaper to develop. Yeah, and we're at this really exciting time of convergence. Robotics innovation paired with the ability to actually execute on big ideas means the possible returns are massive. Exactly. Those lower risk and make it easier to see the light at the end of the investment tunnel. But let's be clear, we're talking about big returns on great ideas, and that's more complicated than it sounds. We asked Debbie Theobald of Vecna Robotics to weigh in on the recipe for that secret complicated sauce, specifically regarding how and why certain ideas should or do make it into production. One of the good things about robotics right now is that there are some people who are, are leading the pack but we don't necessarily, there's a lot of opportunity for folks to enter the game. And so if we can keep that capability or trend within the marketplace of, of allowing and, and keeping it easy for people to enter into the marketplace, I think again, we're gonna see people with great ideas. We wanna be really careful with what we fund and as we fund it or give these incentives and these programs to really automate and include technology into different industries, um, that we also give that pathway for standards, interoperability, and to maintain uh, an environment of innovation. So this will be the challenge over the next five to 10 years. We're seeing a lot of robotics and autonomy in, in healthcare with the surgical robots and also in warehousing and e-commerce. And so as we, as we do that, we need to keep, I would think that government needs to keep a finger on that pulse and make sure that those industries develop in a way that continue to grow and, and foster innovation for, for a long time in the future. Regulation can be tricky. On the one hand, you don't want to throttle innovation, but on the other, there's that safety front and center. So finding a way to keep innovation and regulation on the same page and in balance is really key. Yeah, I think about tech companies that operate in a tangible human space like Airbnb or Uber. Those businesses change the way we interact with tech and the world. And governments and regulators kind of scramble to keep up with how they're innovating. Yeah, there's like a lag, right? And so to get it right, Debbie said it's about balance. It's about the regulators keeping their finger on the pulse of innovation. It's really a tandem deal. But the trick is, and this is more of a, a macro topic that I don't think that it can be, it's, uh, it's in the hands of the startups or even mass robotics. Activities Again, so that that's Fadi Saad from Mass Robotics. This is more of a, a country level question is, how you can balance the regulation activities so that you don't actually fall behind other countries. We have seen self-driving cars companies that just go outside of the U.S. to Singapore or other places to do testing because they couldn't find testing options in the U.S. The same with drones and so forth. So I do think that one of the missing pieces in the robotics industry now 
is you have the unregulated activities, the entrepreneurial activities, the innovation, and then you have the strong regulated environment, right? I think in between, there is a large room to create testing sites. Well, yeah. And of course, with increased opportunities to test, there's the ability to certify that your product actually lives up to the safety claims. And people get understandably worried when they don't know about the safety of new products. And certification definitely helps verify, at least in the eyes of the consumers, that you're not just making bold safety claims. That's so true. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, as a consumer, I spend a ton of time researching things like an air fryer, right? But I'm not researching a surgical technique. The bottom line is, you know, fix me and get me back to my life. And I learned about this firsthand with my own ACL reconstruction surgery. I had it in the late 80s and again a few years ago. But because of the technique and aftercare of this most recent surgery, my recovery was much easier now than when I was a teenager. And that was huge because otherwise I may have just continued to live a less active life than the one I'm enjoying today. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, people weren't using doctor internet to diagnose (laughs) their illnesses and ailments or whatever or like searching for crazy reviews of everything from, like you said, air fryers to plumbers or even to arcane surgical techniques. Today, consumers have way more information at their fingertips and they can find statistics and ask more questions. They can ask communities and not just professionals, but communities of users. You know, that leads to a lot of misinformation as well. So people get really suspicious of what they read online, understandably. So even with those like regulatory bodies, people sometimes trust their own research over that of actual experts, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. But those regulations and certifications definitely can, I guess, hypothetically can, act as a voice of reason that's louder than even that loudest, most irrational voice on the web. Right. So it comes back to when is good enough enough? You know, how do you lean in and innovate, gather the money and weigh the risk of the endeavor failing and then certify loudly, like you said, that it isn't some gimmick that will eventually fail to serve its stated purpose? So to dig into that, we chatted with Zach Servideo from Value Creation Labs. Of all the kinds of regulation and certifications, which ones should we be looking out for? The big thing to consider moving forward with regards to really the future of the robotics industry is safety certification. And safety certification is very strongly aligned with some organizations that really are helping sort of create the standards for safety and compliance in robotics. Specifically, robotics technology companies need to achieve safety certifications for RTMP and SSM systems, which will be critical to the growth of companies developing robotic sensing platforms. These um, safety certifications ensure that the platform complies with standards that are set by organizations such as ISO, uh, also the American National Standards Institute, which is known as ANSI. Robotics technology companies create new jobs. And in fact, there's a need for more talent to work for these robotics companies. And that brings us full circle to people's fears of robots stealing their jobs. In practice, it's just not the case. Robotics innovation serves to create more jobs and more opportunities, especially in and around cities like Boston. Right now, Boston is perhaps doing the best job in the United States of harnessing the robotics industry, therefore creating tons of new robotics jobs, while also augmenting and helping improve existing jobs in industries that robotics technologies help. So moving forward, I think, you know, I'd encourage folks to 
not just keep an eye on the robotics industry. You know, if you're an investor, hedge into the industry now if you haven't. So in addition to the digital native doctors and the facilities to adopt it, you need the right regulation, proper testing to substantiate the claims of efficacy, passionate roboticists bringing their expertise, and then investment capital. And that's how these opportunities are coming together. And on top of the potentially better patient outcomes, you know, investors have a lot to gain here. Yeah, it's so nice to hear Zach encouraging the idea of investing in the space and getting really smart people excited about innovating in medtech. Like we talked about before with iRobot, big robotics players are emerging into the medtech space, which is exactly what it needs. Tom Salemi agrees. I think there's an enormous economic opportunity for surgical robotics. I think we're at a point where there will be more companies in the space pushing the technology and the concept. I think there are more surgeons in the space who are going to be open to adopting surgical robotics. And I think that sort of a critical mass, that momentum, will catch the eye of new innovators who will want to create new robots that will do a job better, who will perform a better surgery, that will help surgeons do even better than they were before with the existing surgical robotic system. So I think there's a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs, for engineers, for folks who, who want to bring the latest in robotics technology to surgery. Yeah, it's interesting to think about market acceptance when it comes to things like surgical procedures. Now, going back to what you said about your knee surgery before, Beth, it kind of makes perfect sense. Yeah, I just accepted it at face value that it was the only option. But now patients have more choices in what kinds of procedures they undergo. So I think some of it's probably tied up into marketing or the messaging of these things. Right. I mean, I don't have any cool surgery stories other than a hernia I had fixed in the year 2000. But I think if someone had said, do you want a robot inside of you? I'd have said, absolutely not. But if they'd said something like, there's a new safety certified, fully tested way to do this surgery that could shorten your recovery time, and it involves robots. I mean, okay, so I was 18, I probably would have done some dorky happy dance, and then tried to like high five all the nurses before wincing in pain from my yet to be operated on hernia. <laughs> I think that's a pretty cool story. And I definitely know the dance that you speak of. But you know, I'd be limping around with my knee at 18. But we would have done the same dorky happy dance. And it's such a great example because pretty much every roboticist we talked to agreed that humans don't actually have a problem with robots and robotics in the world, even when they say they do. And folks with a pulse on practical robotics are curious and optimistic. When I actually think about it, I don't have a problem with robots, especially in the hands of like a trained surgeon. So it's a tool and it's not an autonomous being entering my abdomen. But I, w I say that with, with a caveat. My like, Doctor Who sci-fi brain is definitely imagining that someday robots are going to travel into my bloodstream on nanoparticles or something with the ability to track and kill cancer. With lasers, of course. Oh, you know, Shaw, that's kind of a real thing, those laser-armed <laughs> nanorobots. Truly. Seriously? Yeah. I mean, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. You know, you, you can't see it, but I'm pushing my glasses up right now as a symbol of my nerdy satisfaction. <laughs> um, but what we're saying about being okay with surgical robots aligns with market forces and consumer trends. We went on kind of a tangent there. Uh, Tom, what do you think? I'll be watching how patients respond to surgical robotics. And historically, they've been open to it. It's been used as a, as a marketing device for hospitals to demonstrate that they're buying the latest technology to perform procedures. So I think 
patients will be open to robotic surgery. I think they'll still largely trust their surgeons or their doctors, but people are going to go search the internet. So I think it again goes back to data. I think it goes back to people understanding that these surgical robotic systems have been used before, have been used for decades, are still controlled by the surgeons. There's no autonomous surgery going on, at least not at the moment. We're not talking about the droid from Star Wars that's going to uh, give Luke Skywalker a new hand. We're talking about basically a robotic surgical tool that, that surgeons are using because the robot has better a feel for things, is able to get into smaller spaces. So. At the end of the day, data is always essential and folks have access to the internet. They'll be Googling anything that they can to find out whether or not the surgical system that will be used on them is effective. So surgical companies, surgical robotics companies can only help themselves with more and more data, more and more clinical trials, and more and more efforts to sort of get the word out as to what they're doing. Over time, I think surgical robots will be just another piece of medical device technology And I expect that they'll be uh, widely accepted by the public. And that kind of leads us right back to Vicarious Surgical and the assistive robotics they're working on. Yeah, so smarter software that enables surgeons to do what they do best, paired with less invasive hardware that helps patients have a better experience, wrapped up in a cost-effective bow. That's such a great combination of what's happening now in robotics, but also what we can expect from the future of robotics. Right. So in that same vein, let's hear from Vicarious Surgical founder and CEO Adam Sachs about where the field of assistive robotics is headed. You know, one of the really interesting things about the field of robotics and specifically surgical robotics is sort of the arc and the time scale that it takes to implement major changes. And, you know, we're, we're really at this precipice of a period where we've had some of these fundamental technologies, uh, we've developed them into robotic technologies, and now we're, we're seeing companies ready to launch or preparing to launch things in the next two, three years that are really the culmination of a decade of work and a decade of research. And by by the way, we're seeing that outside of surgical robotics too and, and in just the field of robotics overall. We've had so much of a push in consumer technology that has enabled so much of a push in industrial and healthcare technology. And that's really allowed for all of these other devices, techniques, technologies to be developed, but they take a long time. And it's one of the reasons that I think that this is an incredibly exciting time. I have the incredible privilege of working in an industry where we have not only an incredible technology, I mean, I'm I get to work on tiny little humanoid robots. Uh, It it really does not get cooler than that, especially as as a mechanical engineer. Uh, Also, it's an unbelievable financial opportunity, right? This is one of the largest sectors of the economy. Our competitors, over a $100 billion company with 3% of the market, Uh, it really does not get much better. But then on top of all of that, because if we look at the tech industry, there are other cool technologies with great financial opportunities. But the the way I view it is I have the privilege of also having the ethical opportunity here, the ability to really touch millions of patients' lives and take literally millions of patients from an open procedure to a more robust, better quality, minimally invasive surgical procedure. That to me is just, uh, it's the perfect opportunity. So Shaw. 
Yes, Beth? We've reached the end of the last episode of our podcast series. But before we sign off, I want to reflect on some discoveries that I've made throughout the making of this. That sounds like a perfect way to close this out. Okay. So one thing that really stood out to me while interviewing all these robotics experts is that the common goal is to make human life better. And science fiction, while it can be super popular, it tends to invent fears and create obstacles that people have to overcome in their minds. But yeah, those fears don't really exist outside of fiction. Right. Robotics flips the narrative to the practical side of it. Roboticists are tapping into real problems and seeing opportunities to actually invent the future so that we can fully embrace the practical impact of robots. And that's just so wild. Yeah. So making the world isn't just something that roboticists give lip service to. It's the authentic desire to lend their skills and really their imaginations to improving humanity, to change the world. That's really cool. Exactly. You know, seeing such passionate and dedicated people who really care was eye-opening and inspiring because, of course, yes, there's money to be made in med tech. But unlike other areas, it's kind of a secondary outcome. You know, human health is the main driver for these people. Yeah, which brings us back to something Adam said during our conversations, something that's been really top of mind for me throughout this entire pod. I really do believe in that original mission of surgical robotics, the idea that by providing a more intelligent, more capable tool, we can allow the surgeon to broaden their capability and provide better quality care to to more of their patients. And while he's talking about the capabilities of the tool, that line got us thinking and really kept pushing us forward as we worked on this. Because maybe it's not about us making a more capable tool, but rather a robot is a tool that makes us more capable. Thanks to everyone who agreed to share their time and expertise to make this podcast. And thank you for listening. 